how many of you, I'm just curious, thinking about this the other day, how many of you are involved in some kind of a regular um, training regiment, physical exercise, your practice, your training for marathons or for running, you're lifting, you're walking, you're doing some kind of a exercise regiment. Now, by regular, I mean three to four times a week. And by physical, I mean 120 heartbeats per minute uh, uh, for at least 20 to 30 minutes. Uh, uh, and, and by exercise, I mean something more than uh, sitting in the tub, pulling the plug, and fighting the current. So how many of you, for one reason or another, either to prepare for something or just so, I should say, so you can either run faster or die slower. <laughs> how many of you are involved in that? Can I see your hand? Oh, my goodness. Look around the room. Oh, my goodness. Now, let me add one more layer to this. How many of you are currently, at this time, learning something New, whether a new skill, it's a new instrument, it's a new language, it's a new hobby, but you're involved in some kind of learning something new. May I see your hands? Now look around. All right, now, if I have just identified you either as in some kind of training regiment or in some kind of a learning regiment, just stand for a second, real quick. Oh, come on. I mean, if you're running or training, you can stand. Come on. Look at the room. Look at this room. This is ambitious, is it not? All right, thanks. You can be seated. What are the rest of you doing? <laughs> Think about that. What is the hardest part about this when you train or when you learn something new? And why do you keep doing it? It's hard because it's awkward, it's clumsy, you don't like doing anything poorly, uh, <laughs> so it's frustrating at times, but you keep doing it because generally there's a vision in front of you that is greater than whatever cost you're paying right now. It's, you've got this idea in your mind, or you've found people to do it with, and you say, it's not all that bad, really, if you start lifting, but you've got friends. <laughs> it's not as bad as it may seem. There's always some other reason. Think of your spiritual lives as a way of development more than a way of growth. If you think of spirituality as growth, then it starts to shift a lot of the emphasis onto God. God puts life inside of us, and we just naturally grow because of the life that is in us. And Paul talks about this. He talks about growing up into him who is the head that is Christ in Ephesians chapter 4, 13. Talks about growing in knowledge and in understanding in Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. Talks about Christ being fully formed in you. That's growth language. But if you think about it as development, you think about it as training, now it's not so natural and it's not easy. And when something is hard and frustrating, it's supposed to be. It's not because something's wrong. It's because you're learning to do something or become something that used to be unnatural for you. So if you look in some of places in the New Testament, you find language like this. 
So for instance, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 and 8, Paul says, train for godliness. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value both in this life and in the life to come. You hear that language again. Start training for godliness. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says that all the runners run, but only one gets the prize. Run in such a way that you get the prize. Paul said, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I don't fight like a man beating the air. I discipline my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I am not disqualified myself. Hebrews talks about training ourselves to discern good from evil. It speaks of life as a race. It presumes that we are not going to do this easily or naturally. There's going to have to be some effort involved in this. I think sometimes there's so much talk in, in Protestant churches about grace, 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 as if there were no human effort involved. Think of the farmer when the guy came by him and said, wow, this is a beautiful garden that the Lord has given you. Farmer said, you should have seen it a year ago when he had it by himself. <laughs> and there's always some kind of partnership involved in this. God has to do what only God can do, but then we have to do what we must do. This raises the question I came to ask you. What plan do you have for developing spiritually? What regiment, what discipline, what strategy is in place right now in your life for learning Christ? Most of the time, Church people just come to church and hang out and hope that by hanging out with other people who they presume are more spiritually fit than them, it will somehow just spill over onto them. It does not always occur to us that there are things we are expected to do and must do to discipline and train ourselves for godliness. So what plan or strategy is currently in place? Now, most of the time, when you, when you work out or when you go into a training program, there's three components, at least three. One of them is a vision. You have a clear picture of what you're trying to become. The other one is there's some intentionality involved. And by that I mean there is a personalized plan that's for you. It's not just out there. It's a plan that's designed for you. It remembers where you are. It knows what your potential is. It's mindful of your schedule and your limitations. And it's saying, this is how you as an individual can reach that vision. Then third, there's some kind of commitment on our part 
to be involved in that training. Let me say that in slow motion. Any commitment without a habit is not a commitment. It's an intention. But when we commit to something, we alter our lifestyle, we add things to our schedules, take other things off in order to accomplish the vision that's in front of us. We want to talk about it. We actually change the furniture in order to get there. And last, there's some way of assessing this. There's some way to know whether you're getting closer. So if you're... If you're goal is to become an athlete, then you have as a child a vision of yourself performing. Three seconds on the clock, they give you the ball, you get the shot off over the top of LeBron James and drain it. While the clock expires, that's the vision. So you go into a series of intentional exercises designed to produce that kind of motion in that level of accuracy. There's a commitment that you make to the training for that one moment when you get that shot and you always know how you're doing. You either hit it more frequently. If you're, if you're playing an instrument, it's the same thing. You have in your mind a picture of how you will play someday. You go to a concert, you see the music play, you go, man, someday I'm going to play like that. So you go back and you start taking lessons, and then you practice, and you always know you're getting better because you can play it with more freedom, and you can inspire audiences. Are you still with me? Really? These things do not exist in most local churches. There is typically not a strong vision for the kind of person we're trying to become. Instead, we have vague generalities about becoming more Christ-like, being fully devoted, being all in, being radically committed, whatever the language is. But when you stop us and you say, what exactly does that mean? We start to stall. And if there is a vision, it is not shared by everyone. We each have our own. You still with me? There is then lacking in intentionality. There is typically not in most churches a personalized individual plan for accomplishing the vision that we have in our minds. What we have are classes and we have programs. And so what we do is pastors run around like fitness trainers pointing at classes, telling people to get in it. The assumption is if you just get in that class, you'll hang around other strong people. Pretty soon you'll be strong. And third, it is hard to commit to something when we don't know what exactly we're committing to. And four, we almost never know how to assess this. 
If we ask people, how do you measure spiritual growth? If you ask the church at large this right now, the numbers they'll ask you to look for all deal with enrollment. They do not deal with development. Number of people attending, number of people saved, number of people baptized, those are enrollment numbers. But they are not development numbers. We don't have good ways of measuring spiritual formation. Still with me? That raises the prayers of Paul. I want to spend a moment or two this morning talking about the vision for spiritual growth or development. I believe that the vision for spiritual development, the thing that we all want to become, is not to go back and live Jesus' life. We can't do that. We're trying to find out how Jesus would live our life if he had it. If he had our jobs and our marriages and our kids and our limitations and our baggage, if Jesus had all of that, how would he live in our lives? That's what we want to become. Dallas Willard said the goal is to learn how to do easily and routinely the things that Jesus taught us to do. <laughs> Man, that simplifies it. But what does it look like? You're still doing Jesus talk, Steve. So that raised uh, Paul. I started looking at the prayers of Paul. Some years ago, I started learning the prayers of Paul. Like some of you, I didn't care how Paul prayed. Those are his prayers, not mine. Except the difference is his are in the Bible, mine ain't. And so I start thinking, well, maybe... Maybe there's some swing weight to Paul's prayers that are lacking in mind. So what I did, literally, old-fashioned style, I Xeroxed the pages out of the Bible and I cut around them. You say, you know, there's easier ways. Oh, stop. I just cut around the script and I laid them in front of me in a white spreadsheet like this. So I had the language of Paul's prayers all six of them to four different cities. And then I started reading through all six of these prayers. And I noticed a few things. One is there is a remarkable similarity in the way Paul prays. Even though he prays for four different churches in four different situations, the language and the ideas are very, very similar. That was important. It's not a moving target. There's a core. Two, I noticed that what Paul prays for, I don't. We don't. I don't pray for my kids this way. We don't pray in church this way. There is a language in Paul's prayers that is permanent, subterranean. It doesn't bounce from one issue or subject to the next. There's an anchor to his language. And I noticed that a lot of the stuff I pray for, he doesn't. 
That's when I started to get nervous. Maybe I thought I need to change the way that I pray. And then, not long ago, with those six prayers in front of me, I started to identify some of the themes. And that is becoming for me a clear picture of the kind of person God is trying to make me. I'm going to cite some of these things. And what I'd like you to do, if you're still um, awake and mentally present, is to take a pencil or pen and write a phrase that jumps out at you when you hear the language. Because all you'll need is a phrase. Soak in it. Let me try as best I can to remember some of them. I pray that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you might come to know him better. That the eyes of your heart would be enlightened or open so you would know the hope to which you were called and the riches of your glorious inheritance and the power that is available for all the saints. I pray that your love may abound more and more in all knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and you will be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. I pray that God would give you patience and perseverance and that you would joyfully give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the kingdom of light. I pray that he would strengthen you by his power on your inner being so that you would be rooted and grounded in love. And that together with all the saints, you would learn to grasp how high and how long, how deep and how wide is the love of God and that you would know that love in a way that surpasses head knowledge. Amen. I don't know many people pray like that. Here are some of the things I hear. Can I tell you? One, I hear him praying in our vision for what it means to grow like Jesus Christ. I hear him praying that we would grow in the knowledge of God. Not as you perceive him to be, but as he really is. And that at the same time, you would grasp your own place in God. We, we call this in college church a shift 
from slave to child. It, it's, a, it's a shift from serving God as if he were a king or a majesty to loving God as if he were a father. So I hear Paul praying that we would thank him for the glorious riches of our inheritance. That's child language. That we would know him better. That's child language. Second, I hear Paul praying that we would grow in love and in empathy. I hear him say, I pray that your love would abound more and more, that we would be rooted and grounded in love. I hear him say that God may cause love to overflow in our hearts for each other, comma, and other people. For some of us, people are annoying. Do you see what he's praying? Like the people you work with and the people you... Patriot fans. <laughs> I pray that your love, no, would abound more and more for the people who cut you off. This we call a shift from me to you. It means when I look at a photograph and I'm in it, I don't look for me first. Dude, that's a habit. How do I look? Hair look okay? <laughs> I look for other people first. And when I step into a room like this one, I say, what are their needs? I think about what it is like to be someone else all the time. I hear Paul pray that God would give us wisdom and discernment. I can't tell you how many times in a week I face a decision and I don't have long to make it and I just wish I had an internal trigger that would go off and I would say, this is what God would do, man. Jump and decide in the air, baby. But I worry too much about, am I getting it right? We call this a shift from ask to listen. It means I don't go through my life wondering what God's will is. I go through my life talking to God, and his will proceeds out of that conversation. This is going to shock some of you who grew up very religious. I don't worry so much about the will of God, I presume it. Not in a cocky, arrogant way, but it is part of the ongoing relationship I have with God. And by the time I have to make a decision, he's already eliminated the three things that kill me anyway. He says, there's two left, do what you want. That's the different kind of God than the one I grew up Fearing on a narrow pathway. Keep moving, Steve. I hear him praying that God would uh, help us to be fruitful, that we would bear fruit in every good work, that we would produce the harvest of righteousness. I call this language of consumer to steward. I, I go through life and instead of using my abilities for self-fulfillment or actualization, I use whatever God has given me. And it's, and it's, you guys, it's not just money, it's power. 
its talent, its intellectual capital, its status, its popularity, its whatever God has given me, I put it at his disposal so that other people get more. That's a different mentality than just finding myself. I pray, says Paul, that God would give you or count you worthy of his calling. We call this sheep to shepherd. There's a, there's a shift that takes place in a person's life where they, they don't just follow God only. They start leading with God in mind. I hear him pray for a love that would spill out over onto other people around us, that it would grow more and more. We call this the shift from me to we. Every generation has its sin. And while uh, this generation um, is awful hard on previous generations for their sins, I wonder sometimes if our children will look back and see our generation as being terribly individualistic. They won't believe how my mom and dad thought they could do this alone. But they did. They had their own pages and their own playlists and their own kind of worship and their own favorite this or that. Last, I hear Paul praying that God would give us perseverance and hope that we would know with patience and enjoy what it is to share in the inheritance of the kingdom of light. These are what we call the shift from seen to unseen. Let me, let me tell you what all this means for you. What if you sat down with someone in your life and who knew you pretty well and you took these seven different markers of what spiritual maturity is, now watch, and you started to articulate a plan, no, first a picture of what you would look like in your occupation, your job, when you were doing these things. My guess is, probably 99% of us do not have such a picture in our mind. But what if we started out with just a clear, vivid description of how our role or life would be lived if it showed or expressed some of these characteristics, if Jesus had that role or that life and he expressed wisdom and discernment or patience and perseverance, if we just started with a picture then... If we would sit down with someone and say, what are the steps or the practices, the routines, regiments that I'm going to get in in order to produce that kind of a life? In the next few weeks, what we'll do is we'll focus on one part of this vision, the shift we call from slave to child. You heard in the advertisement, I have a growing conviction that most of us have been taught to sing like children, but we still live like slaves. All of the defaults, all of the language is still slave language. So we'll focus on what would happen in your life if we begin to know who you really are in Jesus Christ.
Because until you know that, you'll act like somebody else. And the person you act like is never as good as the person you are. In this process, we'll introduce to you a series of habits, practices, rituals that you can do. They will feel awkward, clumsy, you'll be frustrated by them, but remember, this isn't just growth, this is training. They're supposed to feel this way. These are muscles that you're developing so you can do it better. Then, if you're part of a small group, not just on your own, but you're part of a small group, we want to make available to you some form of evaluation. We can give you tools that help you assess how you're growing in each one of the areas I just described. You simply use one of the tools, you come away, you know, if you will, your score. But if you're in a group, not just by yourself, you're with people that can help you do this. You'll do it together. You with me? Here's what I would like you to do today. I would like you to pray like this. I would like you to lay the prayers of Paul in front of you. I would like you to read them, immerse yourself in them, circle phrases that grab you. Some of you are saying, where are they? Here they are, quick, I'll list them. Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3, there's two of them. 2 Thessalonians 1, 1 Thessalonians 3, there's two more. Colossians 1 and Philippians 1. There's the last two. Lay the prayers in front of you. Circle phrases that jump out at you. Use the prayers to pray for your kids and for your friends. And then use them to pray for yourself. <laughs>